everyone. Welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I am Tarang Gupta and our guest today is Dr. Stephen Pauls, founder and CEO of Moonfair. Moonfair is a platform that is democratizing private equity by lowering investment minimums, conducting due diligence on funds, and eliminating barriers to entry for retail investors. Stephen is a serial entrepreneur who has previously launched Seven Global Capital, a technology growth fund based in San Francisco, Momentar Advisors, a specialized M&A boutique, and First 5 AG, a financial ratings agency. Join me as we explore what inspires Stephen to leave private equity and pursue entrepreneurship, how to build a successful global startup, and what Stephen is looking for when he is hiring people. Hope you like the show. Hi Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's an honor to have you here. How are you and where are you calling from? Look, I'm I'm calling in from Munich, Germany. Oh great. So how's the weather in Munich? Oh, look, it has been wonderful the past couple of days. Today is a mix between rain and and some clouds, but overall it's summertime. Well, nice to hear that. Here in Chicago, we also had some great weather recently. All right, let's uh, get started. So, for our listeners who may not know, could you provide a, like an overview of your career to date and how you became involved in fintech? Look, more than happy to. Look, I'm a bit of uh, from the older generation, so I started as early as in the '90s my career with BCG, Boston Consulting Group. Here in, in Germany, I've, uh, after I've started in the US, in Paris, and and in Germany. I did this and it was really fun, a great time for six years. But then, you know, I discovered my entrepreneurial uh, desires and I founded my first company. You would call it a fintech company called First Five. Uh, very stormy weather came our way. Um, everyone knows with 9-11 and, you know, um, the dot-com bubble bursting. Um, so that was with bumpy days, but we managed then to sell the company in 2003 to a smaller private equity investor. And this really brought me in touch with private equity. And I joined in the very early days, uh, KKR, KKR in London, called by Kravis Roberts, one of the private equity giants today in the world, uh, and became part of the team. And I was, you know, I think we were 30 people at that point in time. Today, KKR is a machine with more than... 2000, uh, close to 2,000 employees on a global space. I developed there, you know, and worked in the value creation team, so on the operations side of things. These are teams that really go hands-on into the companies and do transformation, work alongside the management teams to drive, um, you know, the value of the company forward. Uh, I did this, and then I moved over to the deal side and became responsible for um, all of our or KKR's German activities. I've been always an active member in, in, in tech and in media. So this is really where my passion is. And then I left KKR in 2015 because I wanted to go back to my entrepreneurial roots. And what I did is, you know, I launched a couple of companies. I, I launched a tech fund in the US, it's based in San Francisco at New York. It's called Seven Global Capital, investing in growth tech companies. Um, I did a Spark, you know, with my second global company back in, in 2021 in, uh, at the Nasdaq. And then, of course, you know, um, probably most importantly, I founded Moonfair um, in 2016, which is, you know, in the meantime, one of the fastest growing and leading fintech companies um, in the world in our space. Awesome. So from consulting to entrepreneurship to investing. 
you have seen it all. How did you approach your career pivots? What was your mentality behind taking such decisions to change careers or pivot in careers? Tom, that's really an, an interesting one. And I did very deliberately, very early in my professional career uh, decision. I was not out for the money. You know, if you are 25 or 24 or whatever you are and you come from business school or where you are coming from, don't go for the money. My desire was really, I was focused on developing my skill set and also later in my professional career, my network. So consulting BCG was a very natural first stage for me. Why is it? Because what you really learn in consulting is your strategic thinking. You learn how to approach difficult problems from a conceptual standpoint. You are trained in analytics, and then, of course, communication skills, which is super important, presentation, yeah, but also oral and written. So this is really why I, I picked BCG. And then, of course, it was about the culture. It's always, you know, you want to work with people whom you like and whom you respect. This was my, my guidance, in, 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 by the way, over my entire professional life. You know, then when I left um, BCG, it was really the desire to go away a bit from this theoretical advising approach to doing things and creating something. Yeah? Uh, I thought after six years at PCG, I learned really the conceptual stuff, the analytical stuff, and I wanted to do to go in, into execution mode. So um, really getting your horsepower on the road and learning how to build a business, it's very different. You, know? you need to be very pragmatic, very hands-on, it's probably less intellectual than, than consulting or high banking. But I wanted to learn really to do things and uh, to be responsible, to be in charge. So this is why I uh, built my first company. Look, and then KKR. KKR really was about, you know, a, a company, you know this, uh, in the U.S. and your audience will know, uh, really, you know, buying large, large companies in, at a global scale. And that provided me, gave me the opportunity to, you know, I was 35 when I joined them, to work uh, a, with a very small team uh, on a global scale with very, very large companies in a different role. Why? Not being a consultant anymore, but being the principal, being the representative of the owner. And that gives you a lot of uh, you know, freedom to have real impact on the companies. Yeah, You're sitting really... Uh, you know, on the on the top of things, and that was extremely rewarding. But again, my decision to join KKR was you know great people, great talent from what I could learn, but also the culture, yeah, a very very you know embracing culture, collaboration, um, you know, also purpose driven people that have a compass that know what they do, uh, but not at all costs. Uh, so that was an incredible time. And then, you know, when I came back to my um, uh, ventures and uh, you know, companies that I founded, I wanted to go back and be an entrepreneur. This is really what is in midst of my heart. Uh, and this is really the spirit that I'm having. And now uh, I would call the, the face in my life more, even more so than in the past purpose driven. I want to have an impact, put a stamp on, on the globe in a positive way with, with what we are doing. And, you know, think about what we are doing. Um, it's democratization of private equity is broadening the access to something people didn't have in the past. It's a global innovation. And Moonfit in the meantime is the global 
fintech company in that space giving access to private equity for direct-to-consumers in the world. Great. So talking about Moonfair, right? What was the inspiration behind starting Moonfair? Look, what I never got is, and uh, probably I should explain one minute how private equity works. Private equity is an incredible asset class when it comes from a risk return perspective. Yeah? And people at B-School will uh, probably know this. The hindsight is, you, you know, it's an asset class that used to be reserved for very, very you know, large institutional players and very, very rich people. Yeah. Why is it? Because the minimum amount you have to put on the table to get into a KKR or a Blackstone fund or you know a Carlyle is ten million and above. And what I saw when before I founded uh, Moonfair, you know, there are the rich people that can do so and they can participate in an asset class that historically has generated more than twenty percent IRR across all economic cycles. So. They get richer, they get more wealthier, but 98% of the population is left out. They can't play it because they don't have the minimum money to get into it. They don't have the access, they don't have, you know, the education, the due diligence on a fund and so on. And really, I found this unfair. And this is what is on our culture. This is what drives myself, my team, our team, day in, day out. We want to change this. Uh, there's a huge disparity between, you know, the less rich and the, the rich. And at least by providing access now to a broader group of people, because we are limiting the and lowering the minimums uh, far down, it's still too high. I would love to, to get lower. Uh, it starts in the U.S. at 125,000 U.S. dollars. You will say, of course, it's a lot of money still. It's, by the way, because the regulators, in this case the SEC, are... Uh, setting the threshold, defining the threshold at that level uh, to protect you know, the, um, uh, investors from the asset class. But at least we brought it down one step. But of course, our aspiration, our mission is to truly democratize private equity, private markets, bring it down. And I'm entirely sure in five years uh, from now, more people starting at 5K, 10K, tokenization will play a role can play the asset class. And this is really good for the prosperity of all. And this is really what's driving me. So in, in short words, after a career, you know, at, at, at KKR, it's not anymore about the money. It's not about wealth. It's not about my uh, destination. It's really about the purpose to change something uh, in the world. And this is what keeps us all together and drives us same day out, as I said. So talk to me about how Moonfair selects the funds that it offers on its platforms. What is the diligence process followed there? Yeah, look, when we started the company, we always said we want to have a highly vetted, curated offering. Uh, because as I said, many people, for many people, it's difficult to decide is this a good investment opportunity or this one. So we said deliberately we want to play with the best players out there. And this is why you find on the Moonfair platform the KKRs, the Carlites, the EQTs, and so on. So really, as I call it, the Ivy League of private equity. And we said from the very, very beginning, we never take any money from the funds. So they don't pay us. It's only the end client who invests into a certain fund through the platform or into a basket portfolio of funds that we also offer. We call it one-stop shopping solution. So it's always an independent selection. That's very important. And by the way, that's very different from many banks out there. Uh, they get placement fees, uh, they get paid 
to put a certain private equity fund on a wealth management platform in many, many cases. We don't do this, never. And this is why what enables us really to take a look at our due diligence on you know, funds that would never pay a placement fee. We got into some of the most renowned U.S. tech funds. Yeah? We are not allowed to name all, all of them, but probably out of the 20, you know, Central Road, Silicon Valley, and East Coast top 20 venture funds and, and growth funds, we are probably in 70, 80%. And you will find them on the platform, uh, typically not at all accessible, even to institutional investors. So we have invested a lot, Tarang, uh, in our investor team. These are people from, you know, um, that have been spent their lives in fund selection, in investment selection, in private equity. Uh, one large differentiator in the market is we are from within the industry. As said, and I've been working on the other side for years with KKR. So we know all the, call it nasty, due diligence questions to really turn the stones. And of course, we are applying them in our institutional five-step due diligence process. It's a team of 15 people. It's as large as the entire investment team in private markets of Credit Suisse globally. And the quality is really, really high. We look at 250 funds in a given year, and some 20, so less than 10%, finally make it to the platform. And this is really why you find, as I said, the Ivy League really the most interesting funds on the platform. We don't do you know, emerging managers. It's more a conservative approach. We want managers that have proven that they can deliver returns in any market cycle. Not only during the sunshine, you know, periods we have probably behind us. Everyone is probably aware we are facing more torpid water, I would call it. Um, the U.S. might be in a recession, might not, but there is stormy weather ahead of us. Uh, and we need managers that have proven that they can navigate their investments, their portfolio in difficult times. Think about the financial crisis or the dot-com crisis. This is why you find managers that have been in the market probably most cases for 20 years and more on our platform. So we are more, you know, we are less so that we will, you will not find the Tesla, but you will find the BMW, yeah, if I can make this comparison. So who are the biggest users of the Moonfair platform and what is the average investment size for, uh, for a user? Look, it came down we, because we offer in some jurisdictions, for instance, in the UK, you can start at 50K. It depends always on the regulation. In the US, it's 125K. And we have these very interesting portfolio products for accredited investors. Yeah, this is, We are talking about 19 million people in the US that are accredited investors, so a large amount. And they can invest now in a fully diversified, highly selected portfolio of funds. They know what's in, so it's no blind pool. You know what you're buying. It's not that you give us money and then you know you don't know where we end up investing. You see what's in there to 80%. And this brought down the average investment amount, but it's still on average because we have some large family offices. We have you know smaller pensions. We have endowments. Uh, we have ultra high net worth individuals using the platform. Average investment size is still 250K. Yeah, okay, and talking about the other side, right? What is the value proposition for these mega P funds to partner with Moonfair? Tom, that's a very important question because you know your audience is now in a time where the private equity industry is and has already fundamentally changed. 
There's a very famous quote which I want to take from Blackstone. It's from the year 2019. And for those less familiar with Blackstone, Blackstone is the largest alternative private equity manager in the world. They are, you know, changing every day at some 800 billion assets under management. And as early as 2019, they have said, I think it was in Bloomberg or so, they said, we want that 50% of our assets under management will come from retail. They call what we do retail, private individuals giving access by the year 2023. So the phenomenon that we are seeing, which is a mega trend or became a mega trend, is called private equity goes retail or democratization of private equity. The industry wants to go down this distribution channel for many, many reasons. A, they want to untap the largest pool of capital, this which is out there. And as I said earlier, so far, before the moon phase of this world came to, you know, uh, to the ground, uh, people didn't uh, uh, get any access uh, if they were private individuals or very limited access to private equity. This is changing, and the industry wants this to change. The second reason I tell you, Tarek, in the meantime, we have 40,000 high net worth individuals globally on the Moonfair platform. And we are growing this number by some 30,000 every year. So Moonfair is becoming one of the largest communities of high net worth individuals, digital communities in the world. They are decision makers, they are C-level companies from the Fortune 500, we have entrepreneurs, we have, of course, senior bankers, senior lawyers, um, people, you know, from the Ivy League uh, business schools across the board, uh, you know, we have all kinds of influential people, and uh, we call it the Moonfair community. And of course, it is also of interest for the private equity funds to be part of this community. We do, you know, events with them. We do webinars with them. Uh, we will have, for instance, you know, uh, Scott Schleifer from Tiger Global, yeah, the co-founder, uh, US-based incredible uh, tech and growth fund, with me on stage. Uh, end of September in what we call deal talk. So I have an hour with him where I can, uh, like we are doing it now, where I can ask all sorts of questions in a, a you know, um, confidential environment. Uh, so we, we do events with our GPs, yeah, with the private equity industry. It's, we bring them closer to, you know, the, the, the broader ecosystem and decision-making system in, in, in Europe and Asia and in the US. That is some phenomenal growth. But one thing is that Moonfair is not just growing in size, but also geographically. You're now operating in 23 countries. And traditionally, international expansion has been something that startups struggle with. What's your secret sauce for making it work? Oh, that's a good one. And in particular, you know, if you're starting a company. Yeah? Uh, let me uh, give you two stats. Yeah? Uh, 12 months ago, Moonfair was active in 12 countries. Now it's 23. Uh, yeah? So it has changed. Dramatically, we were we had I think two or three offices. Now we are close to ten across the globe within a year. I'm talking about a year. And look, there are a couple of things that I would say here. The first really is, and this is something by the way I learned pretty late in my career from Henry Kravis, the founder of KKR. He always said to us, "Think big. The sky is not the limit." So it starts around really with an attitude. And everyone, you know, who has high aspirations should first really start with herself or himself. Yeah? Think big. And this is an attitude. Yeah? Don't think in small confinements. The world is yours. You can do whatever you want. You, you can achieve it. 
It's just a matter of belief. So believe me, this is really what makes it. Let me give you an example. We started operational in 2018 in Berlin, and it was really, you know, we were active in Germany and in the UK and in Switzerland. Really only three countries just started. A proof of concept was still in the pudding. But we took the decision very early on, end of 2018, to go to Asia. And the second office we offered and we opened was Hong Kong. Yeah, quite a bold move yeah, for a young company that has just started. And that is our spirit. Yeah. So <clears throat> how we do it, always it's about, it starts, of course, with entrepreneurial spirit and with thinking big. The second most important component is your team. The team that you assemble around you, uh, if they don't think big, the company will not be big. So hire the right team. Then, you know, it's, of course, uh, you know, understanding what you are doing. So you have to study, you have to do the groundwork, you, you have to analyze the market and so on. That's, that's the obvious one. But, you know, what we did very early on, because of the fact that I said in the beginning, this is going to be a global company, we, we built our technology. And this is really an advice for everyone who is setting up a company. Build your technology in a way that you can go global. Give you an example. If you build your technology only based on US dollar, changing later the currency adaption to Euro or you know Swiss franc or Great British pounds, it's a huge endeavor if you have not foreseen it in the beginning. If you don't foresee to go to Europe with your technology, with your company, and you build it in a modular way that allows you to adapt the platform to all these jurisdictions, different customer journey, different customer flow, different offering maybe, and so on, you will not be able to go global. So what we did in the beginning, because we had this aspiration to be a global champion from the beginning, we built our entire technology from the first day on that it's able to do US dollar, that it's able to do Great British Pound, it can be the Hong Kong dollar, it can be you know, operate in Israel, it can be uh, uh, operate in the Middle East. We could adapt it because we built it in margins. Yeah, that's very, very important. Plan for optionality yeah, from the very, very beginning and don't limit yourself in your thinking. Then I would say two more things. It's about rigorous execution. Now, all this is execution. This is not a business case, you know, at, at, at Wharton or you know, at Harvard or at Stanford. This is great if you understand what your plan, but this is a plan. It's the doing and planning is, is very, very different. So it's all about execution. It's not about the idea. It's about executing. And then, you know, what we did pretty smart, I think, we, we partnered early. Yeah. We joined forces with, with very strong elements or stakeholders in our ecosystem. One is Fidelity. Fidelity International, probably well known also in the US. Uh, one of the largest um, asset managers uh, in the world is uh, shareholder in Moonfair. We are working um, together with them when it comes to our B2B2C distribution. So we offer our offering to banks and intermediaries, and they help us in Asia and in Europe. And the other partner, which is a terrific partner, is Inside. Inside Partners based in New York, 80 billion growth investor, in my view, one of the best tech growth investors in the world. They partnered with us very recently last year. And of course, you know, you have to bring these things together. But uh, when, you, when you think big, then also think in terms of big partners. So as an investor, you probably can attest to the fact that for a startup, one of its key partnerships is the investor it, choose, it chooses, right? And Moonfair raised a Series C last year. 
what do you as an entrepreneur look for in an investor? Another great one, Tarek, and thanks for asking. Look, we had a you know a very comfortable and privileged position because we are market leader in what we are doing. So we we got approached by everyone. Uh, there's literally, I would say, we talked to, uh, we got calls on a weekly basis from the leading U.S. funds. We got calls from uh, large asset managers, from banks, from GPs, private equity companies. Can I invest? Please let me invest. And uh, we had the luxury of choice. Yeah. So uh, we, we applied. This is why we applied a very, very rigorous set of, you know, criteria to our new partner. Inside um, was my favorite one because of their strong brand name and presence in the U.S. And we recently, as you might have followed in the press, we recently expanded and uh, came over to the U.S. We have a, a, a pretty quickly growing office in, in New York with 15 people already on the ground after three months and 30 by end of this year. So U.S. is uh, on top of our priority list and we are expanding very, very nicely there. So we are available for interested parties who want to invest already. You can go to Moonfair, www.moonfair.com, and you can subscribe or register yourself. Even, by the way, if you are not yet allowed to invest, um, so that at least you get our news flow. And that was one reason. The other one is, you know, I like partners who think in an entrepreneurial way and give uh, the founder and uh, the team, the degrees of freedom really to develop the company because probably they know best, but at the same time provide value add and be a thought partner. And this is exactly what Insight is. And by the way, um, earlier this year, also Vitruvian, an incredible, well-known and uh, great partner invested into Moonfair. Yeah, so we have two financing partners except of Fidelity, uh, Fidelity and Vitruvian, and they are both thinking entrepreneurial. They are not sitting there, you know, Vito, you can't do this, you should not do this. They really give us, they question us, they challenge us, of course, but they are investor, they are entrepreneur friendly. And not all of the investors are entrepreneur friendly. Yeah, So always work with someone who's supporting you in your dreams, in your plans. And then, of course, they share the same vision about our company. They all believe that this will become you know, a global champion. They don't think in you know, a limited territory, in confinement. Uh, and this is, of course, uh, very, very important that we have the same vision. And then at, at the end, as I said earlier, it's all about people. It's all about with whom you work, uh, whether you like them and whether you respect them. This gives the perfect segue to the next question. Is Moonfair hiring currently? And if yes, what positions and what kind of people are you looking for? Look, the company is growing incredibly fast. Since inception in 2016, we've more than doubled, more growth than 100% year over year, every year. So to your question, of course, we are hiring left, right, center. We have a recession ahead. We have stormy times ahead. Some people call it a perfect storm. Interest rates rating, raising inflation. Yeah, at the same time, it seems that our arsenal of weapons in terms of government spending, etc., are exhausted. Yeah, there's not more to come to save us. But still, uh, our uh, um, segment, private markets, go retail, uh, is growing because the people are shifting their money away from public markets to private markets for good reasons. The value creation in the past years in private markets have been four times larger than in public markets. 
Yeah, this is where the money is being made, and the young generation knows this. Yeah, if, if anyone had invested in Google or in Apple or in, in Instagram or Snapchat, you know, uh, early days before they went public, even you know after they went public, you had made a fortune. But think about you invested in Facebook, like Sean Parker or someone else. Yeah, um, that's a very important, by the way, thing that I want to carry over here to the audience because I think it's important. You know, the holding period of, for instance, tech and growth companies, take the U.S., uh, was on average back early 2000, three to five years. Now, and, and of course, they came to the public markets where there was still a lot of value creation, yeah, value uplift, stock market uplift was going to happen. Think about um, Google, think about Apple, think about, you know, uh, Facebook. But these times are probably coming to an end. Why? Because the holding period in the private markets is now more towards eight to 10 years. So it's all captured during the time when the companies are private and not anymore public. So there's not much left in many cases for the public markets. And think about you know what happened to Palantir as an example in the US. Yeah? From their stock high, it's down to lower, even lower than they were in the private markets. So you have to go into private markets, whether you use AngelList, whether you use Moonfair, whether you use Humera, yeah, our crowd. That's really what you have to do. Of course, public markets play a role. But this is why we are growing so fast. And we are hiring left, right, center. For me, more than ever, you know, we will not compromise despite the growth. We are now more than 200 people. By end of this year, we will be 270. We ended up last year, 2021, at 135. So that gives you the speed with which you are feeling for the speed with which we are hiring. It's talent, talent, talent. Uh, we need people that are, because we are driving a global innovation, we need creative and innovative people. Yeah, uh, We need people that are entrepreneurial. We work totally flexible. People can work from home, they can work from Asia, they can work from vacation, I don't care. But they have to deliver and they have to be entrepreneurial. Uh, it's a hard working environment. Yeah, We are not a 9 to 5 shop. It's not iBanking. It's not iBanking where you have to work you know, until midnight and, and later. But it's not a nine-to-five uh, job, and, and we have to, you know, be highly focused and energized. And then again, it's all about collaboration, all about collaboration. So we are looking for people that are really willing to collaborate. We never say this is my deal or your deal. This is your idea, uh, your idea or my idea. No, this is all you. You did it good. Uh, uh, you got it. You didn't get it. This is not how we talk. Yeah, we are all in together. We fail, we lose, we win. And this is what I want, that people work together. And the last point is about, you know, we know very much about cultural fit. Yeah, Moonfair has a unique culture. It's a small company. Uh, it's a culture, you know, really no assholes, no politics. I don't tolerate politics. Yeah? Arrogant skills. I have a painting here where, you know, you see in, in big letters in my living room, arrogance skills, and I could talk for hours about it. With no arrogance, no politics, no bullshit. This is what we're looking for. Amazing. So in the last segment of the podcast, I try and, you know, introduce you as a person to our listeners. So I have a couple of rapid fire questions that I would like to ask you. Starting with the first one, right? What is a fun fact about you that most people don't know? Wow, Tom, that's a that's a personal one, yeah. Uh, but look, let me let me take the challenge here. I I would probably say, by the way, and I've never revealed this publicly. When I was in my you know teens, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, 
Uh, and it's probably uh, something that comes as a surprise. People were calling me Mr. Silent because I didn't talk. I was literally not talking. I was playing piano 10, days, uh, 10 hours a day and had very, very limited contact with anyone else, uh, uh, any human being in a way. I was in my own bubble. And when I met human beings, I was literally shy and I was, would say not able really to to talk. That has changed, uh, as you can hopefully see, at least here in the podcast. Uh, but back in my early days, that was Mr. Silent. The next one is, what is the next country you want to travel to? So this is one of my easier ones to answer. It's a passion. I love traveling. I love exploring new things. The next one, uh, and I'm looking forward so much to it, is, is Indonesia. We are going to Indonesia over August. It's an exploration trip with the whole family, a lot of walking, a lot of sailing, and a lot of, you know, low-level low living, because otherwise you never get to know a country. Uh, you have to compromise. Don't go to the luxury side of things. That's good for honeymoon, but not if you really want to discover a country. So my whole family, my, my children are less excited about it, but my wife and myself, we are looking forward to it. So you have been in the industry for a long time, right? Is there someone that you have not had the chance to meet but would like to have dinner with? So many, 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 many people I would love to have dinner with. But probably, you know, taking the question to the extreme, I, and I thought about this, and this is funny that you're asking, Tara, I would love to have dinner with my younger self. Uh, because not, uh, you know, because I'm such an exciting person, but really because I could lean on all every, all the experiences and all, you know, the, the little wisdom that I've gained over my life. I could share this early on, 30 years ago or so, with myself. And then I'm not saying, wow, then I had a better career, I had made, made more money. No, I, I would have had, um, I think, um, a larger impact on the globe, a larger positive impact, more purpose uh, earlier. Uh, one of the mistakes I made in my view, in a retro perspective, that I started, you know, I started my companies when I was 30, my first one, but then I spent 11, 12 years at PKR, which was terrific. But, you know, I came back uh, founding companies when I was 45. So probably I would have been stayed and continued as an entrepreneur. So that would be a learning, yeah, and not did the sidestep with KKR, although it was terrific and a wonderful time. So there are some learnings uh, that would, you know, help me to become even more impactful in a, in a, in a good sense, in a proper sense, an impact sense on the, uh, for the globe. What advice would you give to someone who's 25, 26 and is thinking of starting a venture? Think of a young Stefan. What would you tell young Stefan who's just planning to start a venture, like how to approach it? But another great question. There's, there's one thing that is really, really before the start a company. Be honest with yourself. And what I mean with it, not everyone is an entrepreneur. Yeah, I know that many, many people want to set up their startup. They will want to work for startups. But being an entrepreneur is, is a, in a way, is a gift, I, say, I would say. It's nothing that you can learn. Yeah, it's an attitude. It's all of your personality has to be entrepreneurial. So start, before you start, when you're 25, 26, you come out of business school or wherever, think about, am I really an entrepreneur? I would ask my partner. I would ask my friends. I would say, do you see me as an entrepreneur? And I give you a very tangible example. Yeah? Uh, you know, Think about a situation, the window is open, it's getting cold. 
and someone, you know, you're at a cocktail party and you're in the midst of the room. Someone is standing at the window and um, you are in, in, in the middle of the room and you want that the window gets closed. The non-entrepreneur is giving delegation, hey guy, could you shut the door? Could you shut the window? The entrepreneur is going to the window and is shutting it by himself because it's quicker and you, you're in control of the result. So little examples in your life will tell you whether you are entrepreneur, you know, are you more a thinker? Do you like writing charts or, uh, you know, case studies, very theoretical, or are you more someone who wants, you know, has already maybe founded a, a burger chain or whatever? If you have coded an app, you're probably entrepreneurial. The second point, you know, and I, I could talk about it for hours, the second point I said it, big thing, um, I think big, but what it means is really, you know, when I started in 2016, Moon Fair, all of people in the industry, every one of my friends were saying, don't do it. Who has done it? Who has ever done it out there? Yeah, it's a, the one a senior banker told me, it's the stupid, the most stupid business idea I've ever heard. So they all wanted to stop me. So the advice I would give to an entrepreneur, if you have a belief, a strong belief, then and even if you get habit, think about it, take it into consideration, but you shouldn't stop just because of a feeling of, oops, maybe I'm wrong. You know, the best ideas on earth were born because other people didn't see it. If you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to see something that others don't see. And of course, by nature, those people that do not see it, what you are seeing, will say, this is not going to work. So if someone says this is not going to work, it's probably a great idea. Not in our cases, but it could be. Well, we come to the end with that question, Stefan. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your knowledge. It has been amazing. Dom, thanks for having me. And, you know, it was a pleasure really to uh, talk um, to your audience. Thanks a lot. Stay safe. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the What in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta. Gupta.